God, we have seen this morning, we bear witness together of your generosity with us. You are generous, Lord, with us at the cross primarily. You're generous with us to awaken us unto salvation. You're generous with us to continue to be active in our lives through the same good news. You're generous to be active in our giving. You're generous to even give us opportunity to partner with Costelli Knock. We pray for them this morning. Lord, on this Lord's Day, that you'd encourage their heart with the word in the Czech Republic. And Lord, it's just so exciting to see how your generosity gives way to your people being generous. Lord, you're making us and creating us and shaping us in your image continually. And so we pray that you do that this morning with your word, Spirit of God, through the word of God. Would you continue that kind of gospel shaping? It's not because of us or through us, it's through your work. Remind us of this continually in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so one of my kids uh, has been reading and, and studying about the Roaring Twenties. This is for a school presentation that she's giving, and we were talking about this the other day. We were talking about St. Paul native F. Scott Fitzgerald, you know, um, how he uh, contributed specifically to the literature of the time, and, and that got me thinking about one of his more famous works, The Great Gatsby. And there's a particular aspect of this book that's been on my mind for the course of this week, you know. We were talking about it, and then the story just kind of kept re-emerging because um, in the story, in the novel, Jay Gatsby, he's this mysterious and wealthy figure, hosts these lavish parties at his mansion. He spares no expense. They're quite remarkable, right? And yet, he has a singular purpose in throwing these parties. He desires to reconnect with his long-lost love, Daisy Buchanan, with, with whom he's been infatuated for years, and so he accumulates all this wealth, and he's, he's using his wealth to throw these parties, these celebrations, these extravagant uh, gatherings in order to, to win her. That's what he's trying to do. In the story, though, all the people around him all the people around him can see, all the, all the, the guests of Gadsby to his parties can see is the extravagance of the party he's throwing. They don't see the deeper meaning. You know, they, they don't see the deeper purpose. They don't see his deeper longing, you know, for connectivity, for love, for acceptance, which is where all of those other things are coming from. And so you know, that purpose that he has really gets trampled on. His purpose gets trampled on by his guests in the story. His guests are just enamored with the extravagance in the moment, the grandeur of what's happening around them at these parties, the opulence of his lifestyle. So much so that they don't even have a suspicion about something deeper that might be going on. And in a lot of ways, I think this is um, something of a commentary on the time described as the Roaring Twenties itself, because it's just so obvious that so much of the wealth, you know, the prosperity, the influence that was sought, the celebratory nature of the Roaring Twenties, all of that was out of a replacement for something deeper, like a longing they had but didn't realize what it was for, okay? But the reason it came to mind, again, for me this last week is because I think the reaction of the guests of these parties to Gatsby's amazing deeds, to his amazing parties, his celebrations, is a good picture of 
the way that we tend to interact with the miraculous, specifically the way we tend to interact with Jesus. It's true, you know. Um, we're here in John 11, and what we saw last week into this week, and then even into next week's text, gives us evidence that this is, this is how we tend to interact with him. Like Gatsby's guests, we are so enamored with what we tend to see here that we can so easily lose sight of the, the grander purpose, you know? Because Jesus, throughout John, he's performing these amazing signs, but all people can see are the signs themselves, not what the signs are pointing forward to. So in the text we see this. Like Gatsby's guests, the people in the text are so enamored with what they're seeing, the extravagance in the moment, the grandeur of what's happening all around them as Jesus turns water into wine or multiplies bread and fish or heals a blind man in the text we just read this morning and we'll read together this, uh, now and work through now. He raises someone from the dead. They say, hey, he healed that man born blind. Surely he could have healed Lazarus. You know, we remember from a few chapters ago, they were like, Oh, yeah, give us more of that bread. Give us more of the bread. Feed us. The spurious faith that we looked at last week is really demonstrated by this approach to Jesus that loves him for his things, that, that, that loves the celebration that he's throwing, but can't see past it, can't see past that grandeur to the deeper purpose. So in order to avoid the same problem with his readers, John's intent is to point them directly and straightforwardly, not only to the grandeur of the signs themselves, the nature of the miracles themselves. He does that for sure. But even more so, why they're so grand. Why they're so extravagant. Like what it is that they're actually pointing us forward to. And that's really his primary objective here in the text this morning is what I'm arguing. John wants to show us this greater purpose behind his signs in six parts of the narrative. So I should say that these six parts that we're going to look at together are really intended just to tell the story of this text. I want us to, to just go through this together, to see the narrative unfolding as it happened, and then from these six parts, we'll get a better picture of the deeper purpose. So this begins with what we'll call the preamble. Verses 38 and 39, look there with me if you have your Bibles open. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. All right, so here we see the preamble. A preamble is it's an introduction to what's about to occur in the text. And really, John's been doing that throughout this chapter. We've seen it as we've been working our way slowly through this 11th chapter. Important details being repeated and repeated and repeated throughout, and we'll see some of it repeated even in our text this morning. But the idea here is to leave no doubt in the minds of those who are watching, to leave no doubt in the minds of those who are reading, and for us as we come to the text this morning, to leave no doubt as it relates to the circumstances. There are many eyewitnesses that are present in the text from Jerusalem, so just a little bit of context. They, if you remember from last week, these guests to this funeral have now followed Mary and Jesus to the tomb. Verse 39 tells us Martha has joined them. 
So both sisters, here's kind of the scene as it's set for us. Both sisters of this dead man, along with many eyewitnesses, are now standing with Jesus at the entrance of this tomb. So to set the scene here, the text tells us, Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. And and you can certainly go back and listen to last week's message if you missed it, but I talked a lot about how this word that's translated deeply moved doesn't really mean deeply moved the way that our culture tends to use that term, okay? That is to say, he's, he's definitely moved toward a specific emotion. But the translations that say deeply touched, for instance, which almost feel like they're a translation of the English rather than the Greek, like, it's just wrong. He's, he's not touched at all the way that you and I mean this. Why? Because we've softened the word. Uh, we, we tend not to know what to do with Jesus when he's angry. And that's what's happening here in the text. This word is always used in the first century to designate outrage, indignation, anger. All right, so the text this morning is essentially saying Jesus is still angry. He's still outraged. By what? Osborne reminds us of what we talked about last week. I think this is helpful. He says, Jesus arrives at the tomb still seething with anger. That is correct. That is a correct way to translate deeply moved. Seething with anger, okay? Still uh, seething with anger over what sin and death have done to all those created beings that the Godhead loves so deeply. This is about much more than the raising of Lazarus. It is a foretaste. A foretaste. A foretaste of what? Well, you'll have to wait and see. We'll get there. So again, if, if you have more questions about why Jesus would be seething with anger here, I addressed it pretty comprehensively last week. Now we see him confront one of the primary sources of his outrage, the tomb itself. In this case, it's a traditional cave tomb, um, one that would, would typically be available only to to wealthy families. I believe that to be the case here. We saw evidence of of that wealth that I believe this family had probably via Lazarus last week. We see it this week in the type of burial. We'll see it early on in chapter 12, I think, as well. Okay. Um, Some of the tombs were in natural caves. So families would buy up a plot of land that contained a cave for the purpose of burial. Other, Other tombs would actually be hewn into the rock. So professionals, cave carvers would come in and hewn out um, a tomb, hew out a tomb for, for a family who was paying for it. Commonly sealed by a stone, we see it in the text. We should say that the reality that we have an account of this from the perspective of an eyewitness, which is how John is written, dating to the first century, with other eyewitnesses recorded being present, is highly significant. You know, because there's a site in Bethany to this day that's always traditionally been designated as the place where this occurred by the 4th century. So it's very, very early tradition that this is where this took place. By the 4th century, it became so significant that they built a church on top of the tomb, which I think is just such powerful imagery, okay? As with all these locations, it's impossible to say for sure whether or not this location actually is the place where it happened or if it's later Christian tradition, still early but later. But it's also not impossible that this is the location, given how 
early it became a tradition. Within a generation of eyewitness testimony, and given that eyewitnesses are recorded as being present in the text, we're on solid ground to say, guys, that this is happening in the context of history. But the point here is that in that history, here's what you have in the narrative. Here's the preamble. You have Lazarus sealed in a traditional Jewish tomb in front of many eyewitnesses. Jesus, his sister, Lazarus's sisters, and just to make sure there's no confusion related to the state of Lazarus, this is where we move from the preamble. Now, secondly, to the protest, second half of verse 39. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there, there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Note that we don't read Martha, the sister of Lazarus, anymore. That's no longer the language that John wants to use when referring to Lazarus. We read instead, Martha, the sister of the dead man. John wants his readers to know that this dead man is in fact quite dead. This, this is not a Monty Python scenario of, I'm not dead, you know, inside the tomb. And we see further evidence of that in Martha's protest, where we find a detail we've already seen in the text twice before, once indirectly when we learn about Jesus' delay, how long it took him to get to Bethany, but now, now twice directly when John's recorded to us, Lazarus has been dead for four days, and Mary says, listen, if we do what you're instructing, it's going to smell. And it's going to smell because he's... He's been dead for four days. This is really the second full day of the decaying process. So that popular Jewish belief of the day that Jesus didn't adhere to, but that he knew about very well, that the soul would hover around the body until it was too far gone to be restored to health again. The decay process had set in, which was always the second day. Uh, that, that's now long gone. <laughs> you know, We're two full days past that. He is dead. And there's seemingly... Nothing that can be done about his condition. And listen, um, here we have no reason. I think I, I've, I've heard people talk about this as though there's something inadequate in Mary's response or in Martha's response in the text. You know, we can be hard on Mary for not knowing what Jesus was up to as she protests like this, for not understanding what he wanted to do when he told her, your brother will rise again, right? So some have said, well, this is inadequate faith. It's an example of inadequate faith. But listen to me, and this is important as we work our way through John. This is something that's important for you to know, for you to keep in the front of your mind as we work our way through. There was absolutely zero reason she should have understood this. Okay. To reiterate now for a third time, there was simply no place in the first century Jewish worldview for a resurrection on this side of eternity to happen in front of them. Now, you could say, Jeremy, I'm not sure that there's like a place in any existing worldview for a resurrection to happen this side of eternity. And fair enough. But what I mean is, it wasn't at all believed that when the Messiah came, he would do anything like this, that he would have the power to raise anyone from death to life in this world like this, just not what was thought of. So even if she believes Jesus to be the Christ, then it seems from her confession a few verses ago that that's absolutely what she believes, it wouldn't mean that she'd understand what he's doing here. And this is even more significant when we see Jesus himself killed and then raised from the dead. There was just no category for this within first century Judaism. It wasn't a story anyone would have thought to make up, given that it would have been believed in that context text to be absurd 
the moment it was heard, right out of the gate. It wouldn't have taken hold as a made-up story, you know. So there's no reason to hold Martha to what I believe to be an impossible standard. The point of the preamble in which Jesus confronts this tomb in anger in front of all these eyewitnesses gathered around this tomb where this dead man is in fact dead, and the protest as Martha now voices her concern is both to demonstrate one absolute fact, and it's to demonstrate this fact in front of the watching crowd. It's to demonstrate this fact in front of all of the readers of John chapter 11. Lazarus is dead. That's the point. And that's where we now read of, thirdly, thirdly, the promise. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So on the one hand, there's no reason Martha should have known that this is, in fact, what Jesus is doing. On the other hand, Jesus wants to be very clear that the fact that the Messiah of God would actually come holding the keys to death itself, having the power over, ultimate authority over death on matters of life and death, it isn't like something he's now proclaiming for the first time. It's not something that he's all of a sudden making up out of whole cloth. It's not even something that's a new or novel concept. It's something that these, the scriptures in their entirety have pointed forward to. But he wants to make sure they know it's something he's told them already. And we've seen it in the text several times. Jesus also knows that his people are forgetful creatures. They're forgetful about the promises. And you know, we see this throughout the scriptures. We need what, what we call here at Gospel Life Church, gospel repetition, gospel remembrance. Each week, every day, you know, each week is the gathered people of God, but every day, the reason that we should be in the Word is that we need gospel remembrance. Why? Because we're forgetful creatures. And this is the case right away in the garden. It's the case as the history of God's people emerged. Right from the beginning, you know, to remember as we preach through Genesis, Abraham is told the promise, and he forgets it, and he fails. So what happens? He's told the promise again, and he forgets it. And he fails. So what's the result? He's told the promise again. And he forgets it and fails. And we can work our way through the history of God's people with this kind of simple formula. And here we have the same promise restated again to Martha. Remember, you know, right when Jesus hears that Lazarus is sick in verse 4, do you remember? You can look there, page back. Chapter 11, verse 4. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God might be glorified through it. And, and you know, he's communicated much the same to Martha already. There's also a lot that, that has been spoken that wasn't recorded in this text. But even just in this text, now he graciously reminds her at least a third time of this promise. Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? I'm so thankful. I'm so thankful that the Christian God is a God who reminds his people of the promise in the midst of their forgetfulness, in the midst of their lack of understanding, even in the midst of our lack of faith, even in the midst of our doubt. You know, we doubt, we, we misunderstand, we rely on ourselves, we rely on our efforts, we rely on some other thing, maybe even a good thing, to become our ultimate thing. And we become so forgetful so easily of this good news of Christ. 
And yet even in the midst of that forgetfulness, God declares the promise back again and again and again. He's faithful to do so. Parenting can feel this way sometimes, right? Like sometimes it it seems like children can hear the same thing over and over and over again and and then somehow be genuinely surprised. Sometimes it's not genuine. Sometimes it's like pretending to forget. But no, often it is just genuine that this is the result that happened or that you said that when you know you've said it multiple times over and they're hearing it as though for the first time. And in the midst of those frustrations as parents, let's all remember that this is how we are with God. This is how we are with the promise. What's the promise? In this text, the promise is the gospel. The promise is that Jesus is God erupting into human history to save. You know, like, to raise someone who has died back to life. What else could it be? What else could it be other than to reveal to humanity who it is that's doing the raising? Because who else could do that, you guys? Right? So what is it? It's a revelatory act. It's revealing who this man is, what it is that he's come to do. It's God himself. The word has become flesh. Not only so, but the word has become flesh. Why? In order to fully and finally deal with the problem of sin and death. Here we have the gospel proclaimed to our hearts. It's quite a promise. You know, as Osborne said, it's much bigger than Lazarus. It's a foretaste. A foretaste of what? Carson, I think, elaborates in a helpful way. He says, Jesus' question should not be taken that he was somehow promising he would raise Lazarus immediately, but that if, as Martha confessed, Jesus, the Messiah, is the resurrection and the life, then even in the face of death he can be trusted. That's what this means. Even in the face of death, he can be trusted, for he will do nothing other than that which displays the glory of God. Do we see this? Like, What this means isn't that Jesus is simply promising to raise Lazarus, Lazarus, but rather that the promise is so true that Jesus is who he says he is, that even in the face of death, even in the case where he doesn't raise Lazarus, he can be trusted. He can be trusted to make good on his promises. He can be trusted that even though we're unable to carry the weight of the promise, he is able to carry the weight of the promise. Okay? This promise in the face of Martha's protest gives way to her agreement to open the tomb. She doesn't understand what's going on, right? But she hears this promise restated. And so, okay, I trust you. Like, I don't understand why you would want to do this but I trust you. And this is what now, um, where we see, fourthly, the prayer, verses 41 and 42. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me, that they may believe. So here's the theme in John 2. We'll get to that. And, and this is important, right? Like, so notice here the reality. Um, if there's one central aspect of this prayer that I think is communicated, notice the reality. Jesus and his Father share the same desires. 
They share the same desires. And we see this in a couple of different ways because, you know, it shouldn't surprise us on the one hand that Jesus addresses all of his, nearly all of his prayers this way. How does he begin? How did he teach us to pray? Our Father, our Father. You know, Jesus said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. You know, Jesus does not, we said this before, even in just in chapter 11, but we've seen it throughout John. Jesus does not have an authority that's independent of his Father. He doesn't seek an authority that like somehow is independent of his father. He's not seeking his own glory, independent of the father. That's what we did. So the first Adam did that in the garden. He tried to end around the father to get his own authority where he wanted to be the one who had say over matters of life and death. He didn't want to be subservient to a God who would say those things. So he wanted to end around God to be his own authority. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus knows that and, and, and desires to have an authority that is in every way flowing from the Father. But in the same way, it should not surprise us also that Jesus here simply thanks the Father for what he knows will already be granted. Why? Because they share the same desire. And this is such, so important for the crowd to hear. Like, it's, it's one of the reasons undoubtedly Jesus prays in such a public manner. It's, it's, it shows us that there are times in which Public prayers can be a, a disciple-making, a way of making disciples, of teaching about Christ. We see Jesus teaching about himself through this prayer. He wants the crowd to see that he desires nothing other than what the Father desires. Therefore, he simply asks in advance what he knows will be granted him. And, and we need to hear this prayer also because we so often, as I think in a different way, the 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 listeners in the first century wanted to do, we still want to do this. We want to like play the Father and the Son against each other. The God of the Old Testament who reigns in apparent judgment versus the Jesus of the New Testament who reigns supremely by forgiveness and grace. And yet this is just not the case. And you know, when we make that mistake, we fall into the temptation to say, that when it comes to the cross, Jesus is somehow being badly treated at the cross. Why? Because here comes the Father from the Old Testament up to his old tricks of wrath. You know, Jesus shows up in mercy, but here comes the Father. He just can't get enough of this wrath, and now he badly mistreats Jesus by pouring his wrath out, indeed abusing, a father abusing the son because Jesus is receiving the father's wrath. But what we miss when we make this error is that Jesus shares his father's desire to do this, that it doesn't like please the father in some kind of villainous way to do this, but rather it pleases the father to do this because of the salvific promise it makes to his creation, the father and the son together working to pour out the father's wrath on his beloved son, the son lovingly receiving that wrath that we, as his people, might be clear of it. What we miss is that Jesus goes lovingly and willingly to the cross as the Father sends Jesus lovingly and willingly to the cross. We also miss the reality that, you know, if you were here in Revelation, Jesus comes back with a sword, right? All of this is true. And yet this relationship, this relationship is put on display so well here in this tender prayer from Jesus who tells his father that he's praying for the benefit of his hearers that they might believe. But you know, Jesus is willing to go further than just pray publicly that they might believe. Here we move from the prayer to now the pronouncement, verse 43. And this is where, really helpful, okay, all along I think this has been the case, but now we really get to the point 
where I'm going to ask you, put yourselves in the shoes of the crowd, okay? Let's do this together. When he said these things, he cried, cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! So here we have two things. First, we have a remark that just in this context alone, you know, apart from anything else that Jesus is trying to do or signal to, it's like, would have been remarkable just to hear, just to hear him say. Like, again, I want you to imagine being present in this moment. So nobody's expecting anything remotely like this. Even the, those in the crowd who have suspicions that he could be the Messiah just don't have a mindset that would think that this is what the Messiah has come to do. And so now like, Jesus, you're standing like at the, it's like the preamble, the witness is standing at the, the tomb, Mary, Martha, Jesus, and Jesus cries, first he orders the stone to be rolled back, you know, and you're thinking, huh, why? You know, like that's, that's strange. This isn't something that a first century rabbi would have done. So you start to run through the options in your head. Does he want to go to the body? I mean, there's some implications there for making one unclean. You have to be careful. Uh, does he want to tend to the body, put perfume and spices on it? Probably, I mean, that's very out of the ordinary for a visitor at the funeral, a rabbi, to do this, to tend to the body. Does he want to see for himself in his grief? After all, like they are, they are seeing Jesus' grief on display. He wept. The crowd has said, see how much he loves him. Okay, so they see that. So in his grief, like, does he want to go and see for himself that Lazarus has indeed arrived at the tomb? And then all of a sudden, so like, why does he want the tomb open? And all of a sudden, he shouts into it for the dead man to come out. What? You know, like, has his grief and despair caused him to, like, lose his mind a little bit? Grief can do this. Stories abound in which grief after the death of a loved one becomes so great that the person who lost is unable to cope, and it's very sad. The watchers have to wonder at this point, what's happening here? Maybe there are some who it's like, okay, well, he did do the blind. This isn't just some guy yelling this. Jesus has a reputation for signs and wonders, multiplying loaves and fishes, um, turning water into wine, healing blind, lame, sick. So maybe there are a few who are like, oh, no way, you know, and they're looking at the, the entrance to the tomb. But the watchers have to wonder what's happening. But on a primary level, the reason Jesus shouts this remark is to give, like, these observers and us as readers, all of the readers of John's gospel, a picture of what's to come on the last day because this is what's going to happen on the last day. This pronouncement for all those who have believed in Jesus, who've thrown themselves on the mercies of Christ, to come out of their graves. And it's been said before, quite commonly, it's like in all the commentaries, that had Jesus failed to specify Lazarus by name, all of the tombs everywhere would have opened up to give up their dead in this moment. And Jesus would have had to be like, no, no, not you guys. Go on, I'm talking about Lazarus. Go back. Because that's precisely what's going to happen in the end but to a far more glorious resurrection as we're going to see, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So we've seen this preamble. The witnesses are present, you know. This protest, he is dead, you know. The promise and the prayer repeating the gospel to the hearts of the hearers. 
and preparing us for the pronouncement that now leads finally to the purpose. Really, in verse 44, this is where we, we not only see what happened, we not only see, you know, the power that Jesus has, but, but more than this, we see the purpose behind the power. So, so look at verse 44. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. Another pronouncement that we'll get to. Very powerful, right? So again, think about those who are viewing the event, you know, trying to put yourself in the shoes. It's like the last thing you would have ever expected attending this funeral, you know. And consider the readers of John's account who are hearing this for perhaps the first time. And then even consider the res- what our response would be if we did not know how, the story, how John's gospel ended. If we've read John all along and we actually we didn't know about Jesus, we'd never heard the story of Christ, and this is the very first time we're reading through this. We don't know what happens at the end of John's gospel yet. Here's, what, here's how I, I think our, in, in our first blush we tend to approach this. Like Gatsby's guests, what we see here from what we first perceived as unexpected and outrageous pronouncement of come out to only what could then be described as even more outrageous and unexpected result that he came out. The, the man who had died came out. Like he doesn't say Lazarus came out. It was Lazarus. But he wants to make sure. Like it was the man who died. Very dead. And so reading like Gatsby's guests, or I think like the, the, the people who are there, and we'll see evidence of that next week, we're so enthralled by this miracle for understandable reasons like it, we should be. We're so enamored by what we're seeing, the extravagance of the moment, the grandeur of what's happening in the text, that we can miss the singular purpose behind it. We can kind of trample on the purpose. See, on, on the surface level, here we see the purpose of Jesus' pronouncement was obviously, again, surface level, to raise Lazarus from the dead. That's what he's, he's, he's getting at here. But why? You know, why does he raise Lazarus from the dead? Jesus has known a lot of people who've died in his lifetime, and since his ministry started, certainly, he's known people who have died. Why is Lazarus the one who he's raising in this moment? Why in this instance does he raise from the dead? The singular purpose to Lazarus' resurrection goes much deeper, because in this Jesus knows, like the time is here, the time is now, drawing nearer to Jerusalem where he has set his face, drawing nearer to the cross, the time has come to give us this picture of his and therefore our future. John is writing this on the one hand to record the miracle as it occurred. Definitely. But the miracle as it occurred contains these important contrasts between Lazarus' re- resurrection, the resurrection of Lazarus, and the resurrection of Jesus at the end of John's gospel. And without those contrasts, you know, you won't fully uh, come close to understanding what's happening. You have to come to the end of the story to really read and understand what's happening here in chapter 11, you know, because John records them here. So Lazarus comes out of the tomb. His hands and feet are bound with linen strips. His face is, his face is wrapped in a cloth. And we kind of envision this, you know, Lazarus come out and like, you know, like he's, he's hopping his way out. And to an extent, there's some truth to this. While grave clothes weren't entirely, you know, like, it's like grave clothes of the time with children's books kind of show Lazarus fairly well mummified, where the real miracle is that he found his way out of the tomb, you know, 
that he was laying down on the, the grave slab and somehow he got up. Like, it's like, man, sometimes I struggle to get up off the couch. Like, how's this guy doing this dressed like that? And like this, so not entirely restrictive. Would have been able to sit up, stand up, but walking would have been difficult. I mean, like, his hands and feet were bound. His face is like wrapped, okay? So that's, there's some truth to that. And so Jesus makes another pronouncement that serves as this other beautiful picture for us, you guys. Beautiful picture of our future. Unbind him. Let him go. And the reason this is a beautiful picture of our future is because Jesus secures this pronouncement at the cross. Okay? So what do I mean? Well, the reality that, that Lazarus was bound upon his resurrection demonstrates something foundationally important. What was it that Lazarus was being raised to in John chapter 11? He was being raised to mortality again. In other words, he's being raised only to one day later again die. Like death wouldn't take him this time. Jesus was right when he said this sickness would not end in death for Lazarus. This illness would not finally claim him. He would be raised. But then he would die later on, perhaps from old age, perhaps from a different disease. We don't know, but the point is the resurrection as it occurs here is not any kind of glorified resurrection body. And it's here that we start to really see the contrast. It's like, Lazarus is still bound at the resurrection. He must be unbound by the people standing around. Jesus was not bound by the pangs of death. Where are his grave clothes upon the resurrection in John chapter 20? They're folded up where he used to lay, the text tells us. Why? Because he's the one with the power over death, not us. You know, like, he's the resurrection. He's the life. And so it's done how? At his pronouncement. He's the one with all authority. He was raised to a glorified, resurrected body. But at his pronouncement into death, he shouts out for all because of his work at the cross and defeating death, his, his own resurrection. He shouts out for all who believe. Unbind them. Let them go. Death does not have a hold over us. Death does not have a final claim over us. Even death in this world before eternity cannot fully and finally claim us, and we will be raised again. Jesus will unbind us from death in the same way, but in a full and final sense, to remind us of what our esteemed elder chair, Pete Johnson, stated a few, from a few weeks ago, we will not be raised to be like us. We will be raised to be like him. If we were raised to be like us, what did we say a couple weeks ago? We'd be raised into a world in which there's still evil, sin, suffering, full of disease and eventual death. But as we see this morning, if we're raised to be like us, we'd be raised in our old bodies again, full of disease and eventual death, raised to mortality. But because Jesus is the resurrection, we're raised to be like him, into immortality, into eternal life, into a glorified, resurrected body, because it's his power, not ours. In his purpose here, in raising and unbinding Lazarus, we get a glimpse of our truer and better resurrection, which will look like his. Everyone in this world is clamoring for a resurrection on this side of eternity. You know, the billions of dollars that are currently going into this longevity research, trying to maintain life for as long as we can. When Jesus is saying, stop looking at something in such a small, insignificant way, this life is, is not how things are supposed to be. I will unbind you from the pangs of death at the proclamation which I made at the cross. That's what Jesus holds out to us. And we can conclude from this, I think, 
three pastoral reflections that I'd like us to focus on, three applications that I think this would be helpful for us with applications in the text. And they all begin this way. Because the promise of Jesus was not simply to raise Lazarus in that moment, as we talked about, because his purpose was to show us a glimpse of his and therefore our future, three things. First, we see that we can trust him even in the face of death. We can trust him even in the face of death. Listen, this is one of the many areas in which I promise you prosperity theology will fail you. And prosperity theology can come in a different, couple of different ways. One is like the religious sense of the prosperity preaching that Jesus' central concern at the cross is for you to be healthy and wealthy, you know, and if you name it and claim it. So there's that, and to an extent, maybe that's cliche at times, but it's, it's got a hold on people. It does. It's true. There's also like a secular health, wealth, and prosperity theology. This life is all there is, so let's do that as long as we can. But listen, it's always going to fail you. If, this is one of the many ways that causes life to go haywire, whether you're, this life is all there is, so I live for this world, or Jesus wants me to like always be healthy if I'm always having faith or whatever. There's this idea like if God truly loved us, we wouldn't die in this life or we be healthy for as long as we're alive, but death is a result of sin. Sickness is a result of sin. His promise, if it was merely related to us not dying physically or not getting sick physically in this life, then we continue to live. Think of it. Think of not dying in this life. We continue to live in evil and brokenness ad infinitum, you know, again and again and again in the same way forever. While, of course, there's this urge within us not to die, and that all makes sense. That makes sense. Living in an evil world, ad infinitum, is not the answer. It's not the relief that we think it is, that we think it would be. Prosperity theology is a Gatsby guest approach to John 11, becoming so enamored with the miracle on earthly terms that we lose sight of the truer and better resurrection that is to come, very similar to C.S. Lewis's mud pies in the slum in comparison to the vacation at the sea that Jesus holds out to you. Stop making these mud pies with like, like health, wealth, and prosperity here on this side of eternity. And it's when we have in sight that truer and better resurrection that we can not only trust him when things are going well, which health, wealth, and prosperity gospel is great at. It'll really help you when things are awesome. But it'll also help us when we get sick. And now all of a sudden my theology leads me to think, I don't have enough faith, or I've failed. Because I promise you, you'll get sick. You'll die. There are going to be things in your life where you're going to experience hardship. It's like... The secular version of that, like in those moments, it's like, well, I guess I have no hope. There's hope. Okay, so, and that leads us to this. So secondly, because the promise of Jesus was not simply to raise Lazarus because his purpose was to show us a glimpse of his and therefore our future, we have a rock-solid, irreducible hope that changes everything. It changes everything. We're going to talk more about this in weeks ahead. It's a hope that changes everything about us. It changes the way we interact in this world, changes what we live for. How could it not? Like, it changes how we spend our time. It changes how we spend our treasure. It changes how we prioritize things in this life. And and that's because, thirdly, because the promise of Jesus wasn't simply to raise Lazarus, because his purpose was to show us a glimpse of his and therefore our future, we do not live for this world. We don't live for this world. We can trust him in the face of death because we have this rock-solid, irreducible hope that changes everything. And so obviously what that means is that the Christian who believes this will not, we, we cannot get caught up in the loves of this temporary world, the loves that the temporary world holds out to us, 
But rather, if this is true, we will have our eyes on eternal things. Like if we believe this to actually be true, how can we not have our eyes on eternity? Eternity with Christ, the eternal hope of resurrected glory, and that's our prayer at Gospel Life, that our belief, our gospel belief, our continued gospel belief, even in the midst of our forgetfulness, would lead to a kind of real hope that transforms the way we live in the here and now. As our EFCA statement of faith puts it, our denomination's statement of faith, this future hope we have in Christ, what does it do? Motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. How could it not if we believe this is true, right? Like, so, so the eternal, it's another way of saying, this eternal life that goes on forever, it's given to the believer now, you know? And, and so, Lord, Lord, we pray, allow this doctrine of your death and resurrection for us, this future glimpse of what you have in store for all who believe, raised in immortality with resurrected bodies, raised to newness of life in and with the resurrection, absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord in the meantime. Allow this to settle in our hearts so deeply that it changes the way we live now, that it makes us compassionate toward one another in the midst of sin and grief and sorrow, that it helps us not fall in love with this present world and to continue to seek after you and your kingdom primarily in Jesus' name. Amen.